Our text for this afternoon is Psalm 100. It's a short psalm, only five verses, but we'll use this as a, a window into the worshipful service of God at the tabernacle. So Psalm 100, this is page 500 in the Pew Bible. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So far, the reading from the Word of God. After the sermon, we'll sing that psalm together, Psalm 100, all four stanzas. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what sort of attitude should the church have? What sort of emotions should be present in a worship service? What sort of attitude or emotions are fitting for the people of God who are the church? If there was a particular feeling in this room in this place today, a particular emotion that is most appropriate for worship, what would that emotion be? Would it be joy? Would it be happiness? Would it be seriousness? Solemnity? A feeling of heaviness or guilt? A sense of relief? All of these sort of things are, are possible for us to feel on a given Sunday. Well, in the first two verses of this psalm that we just read together and which we'll sing together after this sermon, the first two verses, one and two, were given this very particular instruction about, about an emotional activity that we ought to be doing as we come together to worship the Lord God Almighty. Make a joyful noise to the earth, to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So joy. We're commanded to make a joyful noise to the Lord as his people, as his creatures. We ought to be very joyful and glad, and our worship should be saturated with thanksgiving. So if somebody comes from the neighborhood and, and walks into this building when we're having a worship service, and then, then this is what they should notice, right? They should conclude something like, wow, these people are really thankful. These people are really glad about, about something, whatever that is, right? And so we might conclude then that, that yes, since this is 
a primary posture of the Christian heart toward God and, and then toward all of life because, because of our great love for Him, for what He has done, well, then we should inject every second of our worship with joy. And we might be tempted to try to find ways to manufacture that ecstatic feeling with whatever we might be able to use to, to lift our hearts to a state of joy. You know, lights and, and, and a fog machine and a set of certain musical chords that just hit perfectly, right? Things that, that can help elevate the soul to this place of joy. Let's use everything that we can to achieve joy in our worship, and we'll get there however we can. Right? And the key phrase there is, is or the key word is, is manufacture. Manufactured Christian joy. On the one hand, yes, indeed, we are instructed, we are commanded that this heart of joy is the one that should be produced in worship, but the question is how? How is that joy produced in our hearts? Where does it actually come from? Well, let's keep moving through Psalm 100 and get to the next verse, verse 3, where we read there, no, right, come into his presence with singing, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This, this is where our joy comes from. So first of all, from knowing, knowing that the Lord, He is God, knowing something about Him, something about His character, and knowing that somehow against, against all odds or against what ought to be the case, we are somehow able to be His people. We are His very dear people. And this, this is a rich knowledge that does produce joy because when we do know the truth about God, when we know what He is like, when we know His holiness, and we also know the truth about ourselves, what we're really like, within the idea that this could be true, that we could be His, that we could be His people, the sheep of His pasture, that idea is so wildly un unlikely and, and remarkable that when we understand what takes place for this to happen, we are consumed with joy and thanksgiving because of it. So this afternoon, we are reminded of how remarkable it is that we can be called the people of God and be close to Him, be close to Him like, like, like sheep draw near to their shepherd who loves them. And we're focusing on the way that, that God used the worship around the tabernacle in the Old Testament to have this relationship with his people. This is the first in a short series about the tabernacle, and in order to arrange this series, we're using the, the areas of the tabernacle to organize our focus through these next few sermons. So today we're hearing about the courtyard of the tabernacle, that's the, the outermost area with the, the, the open open roof, open top, and then next time we'll 
focus on the holy place and then finally the, the innermost part of the tabernacle, the most holy place or the, the holy of holies. So this afternoon we'll examine the courtyard of the tabernacle and we'll see how the Lord causes us to worship Him with joy and thanksgiving because of the ministry that is conducted there. So in our readings this afternoon in Exodus 27 and 30, we covered certain things about the worship of God that was carried out at the tabernacle. So for anyone who is unfamiliar with, with the tabernacle, what it is, the tabernacle was the holy place of God. It was understood to be the dwelling place of God. It's where God lived with his people during the time that the people of Israel were, after they had been freed from slavery in Egypt, they wandered for 40 years through the desert, and then finally they came into the land that God had given them. So during those 40 years of wandering, and then, and then while they were in the promised land, up until the time that the actual temple of Solomon was built, the tabernacle was the place for worship. The tabernacle, it was the whole structure the building structure, the compound that included the actual tent of God, the tent of meeting, and in that tent of meeting were those two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place, but the tabernacle also included the courtyard, the courtyard that was surrounded by walls of curtains, but yes, it was open above, and so, and, and the, the temple also had that same basic format. If you went to the temple, say in Jesus' time, and, you know, you were, you were never allowed to actually go into the building that had the holy place and the most holy place, but you were in the, the outer court, and there were certain courts that had certain restrictions to them. But if you were in one of those open courts, then you could be said to have gone to the temple or to the tabernacle. If you were in the courtyard, you were basically in the tabernacle as far as you were able to go unless you were a priest. So in those readings, we read about the courtyard itself, all of the dimensions and the materials that were to be used for it, and then we also read about those two main items that were located in that courtyard, the bronze altar and the bronze wash basin that was, that was filled with water. And of course, there are details upon details upon details. If you go through Exodus and Leviticus and, and, and read the extensive revelation of God, all the instructions about the, the details of, of the construction, the materials of the tabernacle, and all of the, the, the services, the rituals that were carried out there. There is no shortage of specificity that God gave to his people. This is how I am to be worshipped, and do not deviate from it in the least. So, if you were... A plain, you know, you weren't a priest, but you were just a plain, ordinary Israelite, then the things that we read about, the courtyard, and then in the courtyard, the, the bronze altar and the bronze wash basin, that was all you would encounter when you went to the tabernacle for worship. You could come into the courtyard, the courts of God, His holy courts, and you would be able to see the tent of meeting. You could see the, the coverings, you could see its, its structure, and you could see priests uh, going in and out of it, but you 
could never go in yourself. It was absolutely off limits for you. And even all the articles that were inside, you would never be able to lay your eyes on any of the sacred objects that were inside that tabernacle. They would all be covered over very carefully before the tabernacle was taken down for transportation. So you would see the altar, you would see the bronze uh, wash basin, and you would see the ministry of the priests that they would conduct in the courtyard at the altar and the wash basin. And that's it. That's all you would ever see. Now, why would that, such a limited experience, why would that be such a powerful and awe-inspiring experience that would, that would lift your heart up? What was so special about it? Why would this be true? Verse 4 in Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Why would you be driven to praise from what you would see at the tabernacle? Why would this be the heart's response to that worship? Well, imagine arriving at that tabernacle. You go through the the gate, you come into the courtyard, and what do you see? Well, you see a group of priests all dressed perfectly in holy garments, wearing their robes with all of the colors that were specified by God Himself, and all of these priests are carefully, methodically doing all of these rituals. You see a priest going toward the tent of meeting, but before he goes in, he stops at that bronze wash basin. He washes his hands. He washes his feet in the, in the prescribed way, and then he pulls back the curtain, and he disappears into that very mysterious holy place to do some work inside there. And you see another priest on the other side of the courtyard. He comes and washes himself, and then he goes to the bronze altar, and, and he picks up this beautiful bronze shovel and, and a fire basin, and he tends the fire, scooping out some of the ashes and, and bringing them away. All, all of these actions done with utmost care, with, with a very seriousness surrounding everything. Everything is done carefully, methodically, according to the prescription of God Himself. You can read all of it in His law. And oh, there's the high priest. You see the high priest among all of them with this amazing turban on his head, with this golden plate on the forehead of the turban, with, with that powerful inscription, holy to the Lord. And you think, wow, with such a thrill, this is serious business. God is here. We're here with God. This is God's home. And we've just been welcomed into the courtyard of God's home, His house. And this is remarkable because there's this one reality that is so impossible to miss. God is holy. And, and, and we, coming into the courtyard of, of God's home, we know that we are so very sinful and polluted. 
We're not supposed to come near to God. We're, we're, we're supposed to die being this close to him. You know, maybe it would be fresh in your minds, the absolute terror of encountering God. You know, when, when he appeared on Mount Sinai in front of all the people, <coughs> excuse me, and the mountain shook and, and, and the mountain was covered, enveloped in smoke, and there were peals of thunder and flashes of lightning, and, and that voice of God that, that struck terror into everyone's heart so that our hearts melted with fear, this, this God who is so terrifying and dangerous, right? If anybody even touches the mountain, they're, they're going to die. This God who is so holy, so terrifying, so dangerous, he made his home here and he's invited us in. How could this be possible? And so all of those rituals that are being done are being done because God said, even though I'm so holy and, and, and you're so sinful, I have made a way for us to be able to be close to each other, for us to be near. God stipulated exactly how to worship him, every detail, every, every stitch on the tabernacle. Worship isn't the time, you know, to be innovative and, and hip or, or whatever. Worship is holy and serious, and we do it according to his word. We read in Exodus 30 about that bronze wash basin. The priests must wash themselves before they do this. They must wash themselves before they do that because God is holy and they wash themselves. Why? So they will not die. If you make a false move, you do something foolish or, or unthinking, you neglect something about worship, you, you accidentally walk into the holy place without washing yourself, God's holiness may break out against you and you simply die. That's the effect and power of the holiness of God. And so if someone who is covered in the pollution of sin, which we all are, if someone covered in the pollution of sin comes near to God, they will die because of God's holiness. Because God's holiness is good. His holiness is like a fire that consumes everything that is not holy. It destroys whatever is sinful and polluted. And yet, somehow, God is here with us. God is here with sinful, filthy people. And we're somehow allowed to come in through the gate into the courtyard of God's house. How can this be? Well, the answer is taught there in that first piece of furniture that you would encounter when you walked in. And that's that bronze altar. You walk into the courtyard and, and you see smoke going up from the fire and you see that the corners, the, the horns of the altar are drenched with blood. There's blood splashed on the side of the altar and you, on this day that you've come to, to worship God at the, at the tabernacle, you've brought an animal for a sacrifice and you participate in its killing, its blood is splashed on the side of the altar, and some of that blood from that animal that you have brought for the Lord, some of that blood is brought into even the, the closer presence of God. It's brought actually into the tent of meeting and presented to God for you. 
Day after day, week after week, year after year, all of these sacrifices are made. Animals are put to death to atone for the sins of the people so that they can know that God has forgiven all your sins and no sin stands between you and him. Reminder after daily reminder that the wages of sin is death and you are supposed to die eternally because of your sins, but God has somehow made a way for that to not have to happen and you can live with him. Yes, God is holy and his holiness is deadly and terrifying for someone who is stained with sin and pollution, but God has made it possible for his people to be washed clean from all their sins and to be welcomed with joy and love into his holy course for fellowship and to receive all of his loving blessings. God has made a way for you to be assured that even though you are sinners, God will be your God and you will be his very dearly beloved people. You are his people, the very dear sheep of his pasture, and he will care for you and tend you and give you everything that you need for body and soul. God was showing through that ministry that was conducted in the courts of his tabernacle that he was willing to accept a substitute to suffer the horrible fullness of death so that the sinner could be freed from that and welcomed into the joy of his presence. And so the Israelite, you, there in the tabernacle court, you are able to know that you are included in God's friendship. That forgiveness is yours too, right? You would see there on the, on the, on the priest's breast piece, embedded in, the, in that breast piece are 12 stones, and the name of your tribe is on, that, is on one of those stones. That priest is ministering there before God as your representative. He's doing it for you. What a comfort. That animal that's being offered on the altar, that is a substitute for you. Your sins are being washed away. And all of this, everything that you would see there at the tabernacle, all of that is God's testimony, God's instruction concerning salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. As you read throughout the Scriptures, the blood of animals, actually, they really couldn't take away your sins. The blood of bulls and goats and turtle doves and everything else, that blood couldn't really wash away sins from people. But what you saw there in that courtyard of God's home, this was God's promise. This was God's covenantal, steadfast, unfailing promise about the one sacrifice that was going to be made in the future. God would provide the one perfect sacrifice that really could wash away all your sins. It would wash away the sins of anyone who truly did belong to Jesus Christ. And Jesus would come and himself be presented to God, representing everyone who would have faith in Christ and who truly would have him as their Savior, everyone who would truly bear the name of Christ in their heart and in their life. All of our sins are washed away. This is God's steadfast, unchanging promise. This is what God did because of his steadfast love. He made that way of salvation 
He conceived that plan of salvation before the world even began, and he gave all of this instruction about the tabernacle, the rituals, the sacrifices, the washings, the clothing, the utensils, all of it. All of it was saying something about Jesus. Everything was teaching something about the work that Jesus was going to come to do. And it was going to teach something about who he was, who he is. And because of how sure that promise was, because of the steadfastness of God's purposes in Christ, how certainly all of this was going to come to pass, God was pleased For the centuries before Jesus would come, God was pleased to live with sinful people and he was pleased to bless them and let them experience his love and friendship. So that, that is what produces authentic, godly joy. Knowledge of God, knowledge of the kind of love that God shows for his people. This is what brings us to a state of gratitude, a state of great thanksgiving. This is what causes us to worship God and bless his name with our whole hearts. God is holy, and yet we get to be pulled so lovingly close to him through Jesus Christ because a substitute was sacrificed for our sins. The worship of God that we now engage in as the church, it's a joyful thing. It's a wonderful celebration of the work that Jesus Christ has done so that we could be the people of God. But that joy cannot be manufactured. It can only be true joy when we know that God is holy and we are sinful, but God has fixed it. God has fixed it in such a marvelous way through Jesus Christ. Enter his gates with thanksgiving now. We sing in Psalm 100, enter his courts with praise, give thanks to him and bless his name. What a God we are coming to see. He's given himself to us. What a celebration we have. Why? Because the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness through all generations. Our joy isn't produced through psychological tricks and tools. Our joy isn't produced through certain chords and beats and and lighting. That, That kind of exhilaration, sure, it can be exhilarating, but that kind of exhilaration is fleeting, and it subsides a few moments after you step back out into into the daylight and into real life. But our joy is produced through the rich knowledge of the greatness of the love of God displayed through Jesus Christ. We are thankful. We are thankful because our sins have been washed away, and we can approach God. We can approach Him even more closely than an Old Testament priest could through the Spirit of Christ Himself, who is here, who is with us, enriching this experience of the communion of saints. And we have the promise of an even more intimate existence with God in glory that is still coming. So yes, make a joyful noise today people of God. Your sins are truly forgiven through Jesus Christ. The sacrifice for your sins has been offered and has been accepted. Come into the courts of God with songs of praise. The Lord is good. You have seen that so very clearly. His steadfast love for you will never fail. It endures forever. His faithfulness will continue 
through your generation and for your children and for your children's children through all generations. Amen.